Michael Masters is a professor of biological anthropology. He's published two books which examine the premise that UFOs and aliens could be our distant human descendants, coming from the future to study their evolutionary past. This is commonly referred to as the future human hypothesis. Michael's books are titled Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon, and The Extratempestrial Model. Timestamps are in the description. We hope you enjoy the interview. So, Michael, you're a professor of biological anthropology. Um, tell me, what exactly does that entail? Well, um, in anthropology, it's a very all-encompassing field, mostly because what we study is humans, and humans mm -hmm. are very complex animals. So the, the field itself is divided into four slash five main parts. We have cultural anthropology, which is one of the older subfields, linguistic anthropology, which is more recent, and then you have archaeology, which most people are familiar with. It's a subfield of anthropology as well. And then biological anthropology focuses on genetics, human evolution, human variation, uh, the study of primates, primatology is within that. Anything physical it used to be referred to as physical anthropology. And then uh, the name changed pretty recently, I think, in the last three years to um, our main organization, the American Association of Physical Anthropology, turned to biological anthropology because that is the main focus, um, looking at the biology of us, our ancestors, uh, closely related species within the primate order. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's just it's it's a contribution to our understanding of humanity as as a whole, because no one subfield has it all. I mean, yeah. even if we understand our biology, we're still missing the all-important cultural part. And it was actually one of the unique aspects of anthropology is that they're highly intermingled. We refer to it as biocultural evolution because you really can't separate the two. For instance, once we started uh, using fire and stone tools, it relaxed selection for larger chewing apparatus or teeth and our facial mus muscles got smaller, started shrinking, got out of the way of an, uh, a growing brain. So, so things like that, we have to factor all of that in and, and by taking this approach, both biologically, culturally, and then learning from the archaeological record, we can integrate all of this information and get a, a more holistic view of, of humanity through space and time. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Have you always been like interested in, in that and like kind of where we came from and who we are and those sorts of questions? Is that something since you were, since you were young? Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember since a, a very young age trying to find any books I could on on evolution. Mm. It was sparse where I went to school. I think I found two books in uh, our high school library that had anything to do with evolution at all. And it was mostly, it, it's kind of embarrassing to even say this, it was like picture books about dinosaurs, uh, <laughs> hardly anything. I think there was one page in one of them had anything to do with our own evolution as a yeah as a, a phylogenetic group. So, yeah, I mean, the internet didn't exist back then. So it was about going to the public library, asking for books. But yeah, it's always been a, a really deep interest of mine. As is physics and astronomy, I started out uh, with that as an undergrad and then switched to biological anthropology because, yeah, it's was, it was more of a, I don't know, it just, it, it, it allowed for the explanation exploration of of those aspects of our our history and our prehistory mm -hmm. in a way that's always interested me but also allowed me to travel a good bit too i, I worked at uh 
a three and a half million year old Australopithecus site in South wow. Africa for two summers and a, uh, a Neanderthal habitation site, a cave habitation site uh, near Jean-Zac in Southwest France, about an hour to the east of Bordeaux, uh, kind of close to the Dordogne. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've worked a number of sites here in the United States as well. So yeah, just um, a lot of museum research all over France, Monaco, um, Africa. It's It's been a really um, interesting pursuit, and it really overlaps a lot with the UFO phenomenon, which has been a more recent uh, application of these same uh, skill sets that come with studying biological anthropology. Yeah. Well, before I ask you about kind of your your early interest or when that interest developed in, in UFOs, UAP, that phenomenon, um, tell me maybe um, while you were, you know, traveling around the world, going to yeah, Africa or wherever else to, 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 to work and to, to do field, ex work, to field work, um, what was maybe the, you know, what was one of the most amazing findings that you were a part of or, or something along those lines? One of the more amazing expeditions or just anything, a, a memorable story or event? I'd love to hear something. Well, there were a, a two come to mind um one was in in south africa it was our second year we were wrapping up this project it was our our last year i was on for two and three of a three-year grant-funded study and it was literally one of the last hammer strikes on this big piece of breccia where which encases the fossils from this time period and as it split open it split right through the middle of a skull of wow. a large clearly a primate of some sort um we it, there was some chance it was a hominin what we were searching for just because of the cranial capacity you can see within the the calvarium the brain case that it was clearly larger and shaped like a primate um but we we hadn't found anything even close to that in the two years we were digging there there were a lot of fossils but mostly undulates and and animals that lived in that environment at the time so just having that crack open, I sat there looking at it and I was like, Does somebody want to come give me a second opinion on this? And they did the same thing. Like, what, really? And of course, we were like packing up to leave after two years at this this field site, two summers. So um, that gave us a lot to talk about heading back to yeah. Johannesburg. And then probably one of the the coolest things I was a part of is that at that site uh, in Jonzac, Chez Pinot de Jonzac, it's... Um, we, we went there, and prior to our excavation, at that time, across all of Europe, there's these um, these uh, Neanderthal tools called an MTA handax, Mousterian of Acheulean tradition handaxes. So they're Mousterian, which is the toolkit of Neanderthals, but then they're Acheulean, which is a handax form that was developed by Homo erectus about one and a half million years ago or so. So the Neanderthals carried that technology through but expanded on it and made it their own and made it more elaborate. And um, just the wow. the method of flint napping that they used to make it is, is incredible. So prior to our arrival at the site, which is also the last year that we were working at that site, only eight of these had ever been found in, throughout Europe. So they're extremely rare. And when we got there, they, all the, the lead archaeologists said, if we find any of these, we'll buy you, you know, as much cognac as you can possibly drink. So we're in the cognac region and, many beers as you can consume we're all like all right that's good motivation within about three days we found one of these hand axes 
Um, and they honored that commitment. They provided us with ample drink to celebrate. The next day, we found two more. The day after that, we found two more. We ended up doubling over the course of one week the number of these that existed in all of Europe at this one site in one week. We got eight more out of there. And I happened to find the last one on the last day, which arguably wasn't the nicest. Some of these are, you know, probably, I don't know, I'd say 20 centimeters tall, eight centimeters wide, Um, pretty big, phenomenally constructed pieces. Um, But yeah, so just, just being a part of that in this one site, just striking gold you could say with this very rare artifact and yeah just just being a part of contributing that to the the knowledge of the toolkit of neanderthals in that region was was pretty fun yeah that is, that's wild um how did it feel to hold you know did you get to hold one or are you like kind of leaving it at a major distance you you know i don't know how it is when you're on the in in the field but so you did hold it and how does that feel then holding that knowing that it was held you're going to tell me x amount of years ago by yeah you know, one of our great ancestors. Yeah, no, it's pretty amazing. Um, and, and yeah, you have to hold it because you're, you're very meticulously scraping away the dirt around it to reveal its mm. full form before you take it out. And we had uh, uh, laser transits, theodolites that were three of them that we would coordinate all of those points, then it would digitally map all of those points. So once it's all digitized, once it's sighted in, uh, so we have provenience, then yeah, you take it out and you wash it off and everybody passes it around very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. That particular site dated back to about 150,000 years ago. The place I was working just under the collapsed cave roof was a little more recent, probably closer to 45, 50,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the coolest things I got to hold in my hand was the skull of one of our direct ancestors. Neanderthals were kind of an offshoot, uh, a cousin, you might say. But I did get to hold the skull of what's known as Miss Pless, STS-5 is the the catalog name. But she was a uh, about 3 million year, 3.2 million year old hominin, direct ancestor of us. Um, Really well preserved. The the fossil is, is an fantastic shape you can even lift off the the skull case and look down inside to where the brain sat it's that well preserved so i'd say as far as the just the um emotional response you get to holding something that old that's uh you know the the direct ancestor of us that was probably one of the coolest ones that's in the uh, museum in pretoria south africa yeah that's insane just uh yeah just thinking about that like have that in your hand the skull of somebody who lived three million years ago yeah it's pretty well wow um and the other story that you mentioned there so naturally i'm assuming that the skull you found in south africa was a bigfoot um did did you find (laughs) out exactly like what that skull was about like uh, you said it was bigger than the hominins that you were expecting to find there no um it was bigger than it was definitely bigger than all of the undulates, the the deer, the gazelles, the deep deep ancestors, but it was it was more about the shape of it too. Um, so it it had a, a more developed brain case, and you could see the face on it too, which was it it instantly separated it from other mammals. It it put it in the primate order, so we know it's either a monkey or a human ancestor, a hominin. 
I'm guessing it was not a hominin because nobody ever told me that it was. And I don't remember seeing anything in the literature about a new hominin species or another member of uh, the known hominin species in that area. So I, I'm guessing it probably came out as a, a vervet monkey ancestor, possibly something larger than that. But um, yeah. no, just, I mean, as far as the the excitement of that find on the last day, right before we're leaving, um, as anything that well preserved a skull in general, even if it was, you know, a deke deke or um, some sort of, you know, leopard or something like that, that would have been mm-hmm. pretty cool too. But the fact that we got something within the primate order itself was um, definitely exciting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, so I guess let's let's find out then. Tell me, how did you kind of first incorporate UFOs into all this or UAP? How did the, they first kind of enter your world, as it were? How did you first start taking note or taking interest of that? Um, yeah, walk me through that process. Well, it, it started when I was um, pretty young. I, I talk about this briefly in... Uh, each of my my first two books because it it kind of introduces my own interest in it, um, which I think shapes a lot of understanding sort of where I went from there, and helps you know frame the whole the whole conversation for the reader as well. But so it started when I was about eight years old, and I overheard my uh, biological father talking about a UFO encounter he had shortly before I was born. And he was just describing what happened to some friends that were over at our house one night. And mm-hmm. it, it piqued my interest. You know, I wasn't supposed to be hearing that. I was listening from the stairs when I was supposed to be up in bed. And it it made me wonder, all right, so this is real? You know, he's talking about this as, it, as if it's real. And mm-hmm. it was a, a pretty close encounter as far as those go no missing time or anal probes or anything like that, but, but, but definitely an object that he, he and someone else, it wasn't just his own sighting, but someone was with him in his truck at the time, um, yeah. observing this thing that was clearly not uh, an airplane or, you know, a, a balloon or anything like that. So shortly thereafter, he got uh, Whitley Strieber's book Communion, which a lot of people are probably familiar with. It's a New York Times bestseller. I think it was published in 86 or 87. And um, yeah, I remember looking up at the the shelf and that book was facing out, which I thought was kind of strange to start with since most books are put with a spine facing out. But I remember seeing that yeah. and then wondering, having sort of this like flash, I guess you could say, and and picturing in my head a chimpanzee, a modern human, and then this sort of archetypal gray alien form. And just that question arose in my mind. Could they be us? Could they be a more evolved version of us? Knowing very little, if anything, about human evolution at the time, it just made sense. You know, there was enough that we had in common morphologically that seemed to indicate that they are just one of us, but from a time where their uh, physiology and obviously technology was more evolved. And if that's the case, what we're observing uh, would seem to be them traveling through time to uh, observe us and uh, conduct experiments, observations, collect gametes seems to be a very common thing described in these. So really, my origin was with that 
that moment, uh, two moments, I guess, hearing his account, realizing this is real, and then having sort of this um, question arise in my mind shortly thereafter, probably around age eight or nine as well. Yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah, as soon as you saw that book, you kind of had that. You, so you were never really um, kind of interested in UFOs and and also at the same time thinking that it's aliens from another planet or it's something else. You kind of, from that very early age, you thought, seems like it could be us in the future. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, yeah. I would never, I was always interested in science. I was kind of a nerd as a kid and still am, I guess. Um, you know, I was, I was really interested in like the Titanic. We found that around the time, Me that, too. the same time. And I just couldn't get enough of it. You know, I wanted to know every yeah. detail, um, yeah. just things like that. I was really interested in nature and animals. And, um, my mom got me a, a lot of books and magazines. So I was already, you know, focused on questions and, and scientific answers to questions or how much we can know. And this one you know, threw a, a wrench in those cogs instantly because it wasn't supposed to be real. And until recently, it wasn't real, as our, our collective consciousness would dictate. So, yeah, it, it became sort of a, a more interesting question than all of the other scientific questions, simply because of the mystery that surrounds it and this debate about whether or not this really is even something that's worth considering, uh, mm -hmm. which trickled all the way into... You know, when I first started writing this this first book, Identified Flying Objects in 2012, it was still, you know, I had to ask, am I wasting my time with this? Is this even something real? But if if you look past that that manufactured uh, descent and, and look at how many people have had experiences and how consistent those are across the board, then it, it really is something worth our consideration. And and obviously, from a very young age, you have the question of of selection bias and sample bias, and mm -hmm. where you could be looking for things that that back that up, simply because that's the starting point. That's where you're coming from. But I was I was aware of that from a very young age, and uh, I've tried to be very judicious and and looking at all sides of things and considering all evidence and not just cherry picking that which would seem to indicate that they are us from the future. Even though the more I've looked into it, the more that that seems to be the case. There's just a mounting evidence that if we're going to interpret them in the context of extraterrestrials or time travelers or crypto terrestrials, ultra terrestrials, that that one seems to explain the most and and have the fewest assumptions. And in Occam's Razor principle of parsimony context, it mm -hmm. it assumes the fewest things but explains the most. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm looking forward to you telling me uh, some some of those things in a minute. It's one of those hypotheses, I suppose, that when you kind of, um, if you know somebody that's not really in these these areas, they're not familiar that that much with with these you know these phenomena, UFOs and, and other things, and if they hear somebody say that, like, oh, I think UFOs might be future humans, it sounds like you know totally totally wild, doesn't it? Like totally out there. But then when you actually sit down and and think about it why is it so wild it's maybe not so wild and and yeah, yeah that's in why fact I'm really looking forward to talking to you yeah i mean just in the context of what i mentioned about occam's razor we we know we're here there's mm. a big assumption just even going to the extraterrestrial model because we don't know if there's other life out there but we do know we're here and we do know we've had a long presence on this planet and throughout that time 
we've evolved very specific sets of traits and we've evolved technology that accelerates in its development. So it's really not that much of a, a jump to just look at the past, look at where we are and say, there's a good chance we would look exactly like these things that people are describing. Yeah, I guess on that note, the, possibly the biggest flaw or at least one of the biggest like challenges to, to the hypothesis, from, from my point of view at least, would be the odds of us surviving you know, long enough into the future. I guess there's going to be a certain window. Like if we can get past, I don't know how many hundreds, maybe a thousand years, then we're probably going to sail off into the sunset in one way or another, like multiply, become, you know, on various other planets and just expand. But uh, I think we're at a key point um, over the next, I don't know how many years, but fairly short term in the grand scheme of things as to whether we can we can keep yeah, going. Well, you're right. But the important thing is, at least as far as this model goes, and, and that's one thing I've argued early on, is that's what makes it testable too. Um, mm, some of these yeah. other models aren't testable, even though we call them hypotheses. They aren't actual technical hypotheses because they're not falsifiable. But this one is. If we eventually become these same individuals and these same advanced craft going back in time, we've now validated this hypothesis. If we destroy every member of the human species, we've also tested that hypothesis and falsified it. So it's an important aspect of it that sets it apart from some of these others. But also you need to keep in mind that it doesn't have to be the entire species. We yeah. only need yeah, yeah. 10 people Off to shoot. survive. Even the worst catastrophe you could imagine and we still have yeah. a future and that knowledge that we build up, even if those individuals yeah. don't have the skill set to create a time machine 10 years after 99% mm -hmm. of humanity dies, their descendants will have access to the bricks that have been laid in that foundation over long periods of time and then could eventually draw yeah. from that and carry on and do it. So, yeah, a lot of people early on would say, you know, it, it gives us hope that that humanity will survive. Well, yes, but it doesn't mean every member of humanity will survive there can still be environmental you know catastrophes related to climate change or asteroids or mega tsunamis or nuclear holocaust ourselves, ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just exactly doing yeah. it to ourselves because of political and religious dogma so that's definitely yeah. on the table and, and yeah i mean every generation thinks it's the end of the world you know there, there you see that throughout history it's only recently that we actually can do it that we have the tools to kill ourselves and and it's it's crazy that we ever did that in the first place i saw a quote by einstein recently that says something like a mouse would never invent a mouse trap or you know even if they could would they and we just built something that can destroy vast swaths of humanity for the that specific reason to kill vast swaths of humanity so yeah, does that yeah. make us more intelligent or less intelligent? I don't know. And and yeah, like you're right. We're sitting on such a, a Tinder box too. And again, always have been, but it didn't really matter because you couldn't kill everybody and most of the life on this planet then. Yeah, yeah. But I agree with you that even if even if we say we're going to, you know, climate and nuclear disaster and, and a bunch of other factors are going to combine to wipe out 99.9% .9 of us, all it takes is, yeah, a small breakaway group and we're getting close to the point with space travel that that's very possible that a small group could break away in, into, into yeah. a space station or we could go underground there's plenty of ways um but let me ask you then to kind of go back to you know when you were first becoming interested in in ufos and you were thinking could this be could these you know be us from the future how did you go from that point 
to developing your your model, your hypothesis that you have today that you've put so much work into? Um, and whether you want to integrate this kind of part B to that question or, or we can talk about it after you've told me how you got there, it was going to be to talk through your hypothesis, your model in, in as much detail as you want. Yeah, so, I mean, really it started with the idea and the idea hasn't changed as far as the the holistic nature of it on the whole it's the same idea that it's us from the future coming back through time so that was kind of the starting point and then from there it was this deep dive into human evolution and physics and astrobiology and astronomy and philosophy psychology to just see if that is valid if there's any reason to continue pursuing that because i've always you know been waiting for anything that would just derail all of it and i would move on to something else um but that hasn't been the case it's been the more i look into this idea in different ways and through different fields and subfields and disciplines it seems to just sort of bolster it you know and obviously again being aware of confirmation bias and selection bias there there hasn't been anything that derailed it and there's only been things that have allowed me to think about it in different ways and a lot of that comes from things like this right now having conversations with people um people reaching out to me over email or sending letters and I, wow i hadn't thought about that how did i how did i leave that out you know and, and a lot of that went into the second book um mm-hmm. things like like the role of ai uh genetic manipulation disease transmission across time the uh, the way in which they seemingly speed up and slow down time with these craft to help explain the G-forces. Those are things I hadn't thought of that didn't go into the first book that after publishing that book and talking to people, they would fill in these gaps and, and sort of and just through having that conversation about this in the same way that I have with myself since I was eight years old has helped to expand that idea, not just for me or from me, but I think on the whole, just having this conversation yeah. as as people now, it seems to be something that's discussed more than it was in the past, not just because of, of what I'm doing. The idea has been around since the 1940s, but just taking it seriously, talking about it. See, you're right. There's that knee-jerk reaction. Time travel, people from the future. No, that can't be right. But when you break it down and look at it, it it's a way simpler explanation that helps elucidate more about this phenomenon than a lot of the others. And it's easy to do the straw man thing and say, well, it's this or the extraterrestrial hypothesis, and it's not. And these aren't mutually exclusive. It could be both and a lot of other things uh, outside that that we don't yet understand or we do and we've interpreted them wrong and and maybe it's all part of the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, and these explanations are just finding little bits of the broader phenomenon to explain those bits. But potentially there's there's they're all interrelated it's all part of the same thing so so my understanding of it has evolved um and i've tried to sort of dive into that more with with writing and these conversations and um more recently you know i started from a very materialist point of view with um really focusing on the craft and the beans and what we can know physically and that was my upbringing in academia and they kind of drive that into your head if we can't test it we can't measure it it's not worth even talking about obviously this phenomenon doesn't lend itself to 
to the strict use of the scientific method and hypothesis testing. So we we have to expand our way of understanding and and looking at and discussing and, and testing. There are still ways to test things. We just can't really do it in the same way that we can with, you know, testing whether or not this drug works to cure cancer and things like that. So um, it's been a constant evolution for me. And, and more recently, I've sort of gotten away from that strict materialist interpretation and have been looking into, you know, the psi aspects of this, the telepathy, mm. the clairvoyance, yeah. the future knowledge, the uh, the role of consciousness and all of this, human consciousness specifically, pan-consciousness more broadly. And and I think all of those things need to be considered psychedelics, what, what people uh, observe and report, especially the DMT, psilocybin, LSD, how do those relate to this question and uh, human consciousness more broadly? So, um, you know, I, I don't think, especially because of where we are in time, if this is correct, this model, simply because of our primitive minds and their evolutionary past trying to understand it, we're missing giant pieces of the puzzle simply because we're not there yet with our science and technology. So, having the idea out there and discussing it the best we can with the knowledge that we have in this current now or present um, is still going to be limiting, but, you know, potentially that's part of the stepping stone to getting to that, that, um, that reality as, as physical reality and, and potentially their more highly evolved consciousness and, and the way they understand it. And therefore we understand it. If we are actually getting information and seeing things from our own future, there becomes sort of a, a, a bootstrap, self-consistent time loop there, where it's not just you know us seeing, but us learning from that future and and potentially going on to create some of the things that we saw earlier, simply because we're getting glimpses of that future. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, I mean, is there is there anything else you wanna you wanna kind of mention about yeah your your take on the whole thing, your hypothesis? Um, your model is there anything at this stage you want to you want to mention well i mean as far as the the main way in which i've approached this as i've said my my approach and understanding and understanding of this approach have evolved significantly but yeah. early on you know from that very first moment when i was eight or nine years old it was about the physiology it was about our physical form and just seeing what I would now know as a, a synapomorphy or a homology, shared characteristics that are the result of shared evolutionary history, a shared phylogeny, mm -hmm. you would say. So, so that was apparent just from you know seeing that face. Again, is that face representative of these creatures, these beings? It's an artist's de depiction of Whitley Strieber's description. And the one thing that bothered me is the forehead was always too small. It was really short, like ended right above the eyebrows. And I was on an interview with Whitley once and I asked him about that. And he said, no, this is actually something me and the artist thought about a little bit is that their foreheads, their heads in general were much larger. And, um, but still, you know, it wasn't just me, like that image on that book triggered kind of an awakening with a lot of people who had an experience of their own. Some remembered it very clearly. Some had uh, screen memories or, or UFO amnesia, as it's often called. 
but that sort of allowed this breakthrough where those suppressed memories now came more into their their overt consciousness um but in looking at the form of these beings and then as i learned more about uh human evolution and and became my my main specialty was in craniofacial evolution craniofacial variation so that was the main focus for me and then also the eyes too what happens with the eyes that are sandwiched between an expanding uh and forward moving interior moving frontal lobe and a retracting face what happens to the eyes in a functional sense so i've i've written about and researched kind of the um the etiology of juvenile onset myopia and astigmatism and other issues that we have that seem to be the result of those two evolutionary trends the eye becoming squished compressed uh, anterior inferiorly simply because of those things moving together so there are a lot of little branches that that came off of of studying this but the main question was could we be evolving to look like that with the bigger heads the smaller faces and that is the most dominant evolutionary trend in human evolution you, you look at these early hominins like sts5 miss plus for instance they have these big projecting faces what we call facial prognathism and low sloping foreheads I made the analogy in in my first book with domesticated dogs you can see it very clearly where in a pug or a chihuahua they have these rounded neurocrania and a, a very small face relative to um you know a, a doberman pincher or a collie or something like that, where it's a big projecting face and a very low sloping forehead. So there's what it's what we call a bow plan. This relationship among parts in the skull. Um, and and that's what's been happening to us throughout human evolution, partly because of tools, you know, fire, stone tools, cutting, processing our food, things like that. But also that's just what has happened because we stood upright. We became bipedal, our heads had to rotate down. As that happens, our frame and magnum, the big hole in the back of the skull moves forward. We have a flexing of the base of cranium. Um, and all of those things, as a result, correlate with our brains having more space to grow. Our faces getting out of the way of that brain. Our free use of hands, which creates this feedback loop with our our uh, our brain size and our, our consciousness, our technology, our ability to understand and manipulate the environment. And that's very unique to us. And and most of it just centers on standing upright. We're, we're the only habitually bipedal mammal on this planet. We're the only ones that are always on two legs. That's always reported in these instances of close encounters. We share our tetrapod status, having four limbs, pentadactyly, having five digits at the end of each limb. All of these things indicate shared evolutionary history on this planet, not just with us, but with all of these different uh, animal species that that exist here and have for a very long time. So, yeah, that was sort of the the origin point for me was the physiology aspect of it. But even looking beyond that, the technology these these craft these disc shaped craft in particular seem to have a form that's indicative of the function of backward time travel. They manipulate time in and around that craft. It's described in all these different cases, and that was kind of the focus of my second book is is looking at those first-hand accounts. What is it about these ships that do seem to indicate that they're manipulating space-time? And if they are, you know, what's keeping them from going back in time? And there's there's nothing in the laws of physics that prohibits backward time travel. And if that's the case, it's really only a matter of time until we figure it out. Yeah. 
Wow, just fascinating. So much, so many er- like directions I could go from that to, to ask you various questions. Um, it's just interesting. It just popped into my mind just a second ago. I'm sure you've heard this plenty of times, but you know, Louis, Louis Elizondo, he famously uh, kind of dropped a little clue or a little hint or, or just said something in one of his interviews um, that uh, are we ma- like mankind's plural. Um, something to that effect, and and it's just kind of just came back to me then, just popped into my head as you're as you're saying all this. It's like yeah, uh, very interesting. Um, the features as well in regards to like they're the gray alien, right? That's the kind of typical thing on the front of Whitley Strieber's book, and and that's the most commonly reported um, humanoid being that that people encounter in in you know abductions or, or what have you. And I suppose when you look at it, even just from like a layman like me, like I'm, I'm no anthropologist, but you know, you, you've got like the, what the, this really skinny all over skinny arms, skinny legs. And I suppose you, you'd say either living in space, you don't need muscle, but even, even on earth, the way we are evolving, if we manage to go for a few more thousand years, we're going to have robots doing everything. Never mind going to the gym and working out. We're going to have like a robot to lift our, our arm up while we shower and things like that. You know, yeah. we're going to be doing almost nothing ourselves. Um, so that adds up. And like you say, like the less chewing and things like that, I suppose, again, that's going to go in the way of eating maybe as an inconvenience in the future. And we're going to consume everything we need from a tablet or something like that. And yeah. I guess that goes towards the, or, the or maybe even an, an impossibility. Uh, one of the main things that happens is when our faces shrink back, it creates a lot of problems. We have TMJ, we can choke, uh, we have sleep apnea, problems breathing. So yeah, if that trend continues and there's no reason to expect a six to eight million year old trend would suddenly stop, then perhaps we have to, you know, maybe telepathy, this very commonly reported thing is simply because speaking becomes difficult Mm. because our faces have shrunk back to such an extent so so yeah it's... and ears as well they mm-hmm. they shrunk right they're, they're right down so that would kind of go in hand in hand with that idea as well yeah um yeah it is it is and the big eyes i mean yeah the whole thing is is fascinating it's really interesting it's so thought-provoking isn't it um i mean where do we go from here um let's let's say how confident are you in your hypothesis like how confident are you that this is the one that best fits the facts obviously you're not going to sit there and tell me this is definitely what's happening but um yeah what would you say is your degree of confidence in it i mean it's it's evolved tremendously uh over the last 11 years since i first started really putting pen to paper and writing about this um i would say it's been somewhat linear where mm-hmm. at first i was very cautious and uncertain because I didn't have the same breadth of knowledge about this phenomenon that I did back then. In fact, I hired a couple of research assistants to carry the the weight of the UFO aspect of this early on. It's something I've always been interested in. Obviously, I've watched all the shows on Discovery Channel or you know whatever shows talking about Bob Lazar or whatever it was back then, but I never really went deep into that aspect of it until writing this first book and i had them go out and sort of collect information sort of weed through um the mess that that was and continues to be ufology to sort of present to me things that would be useful for this research and then in this most recent book the extra tempestrial model i sort of flipped that the first one was primarily the science behind it with four 
major fields I focused on, astrobiology, astronomy, physics, and anthropology. And then tied in a little bit of abductions, mostly looked at the craft and the reports of the craft, because again, really approaching it from a strict materialist point of view. And then this most recent book flips that, where it's all about these close encounters and abductions and contactee experiences, mm -hmm. but still bringing in those elements of how we might understand this scientifically, but the origin point, the starting point was very different. And, and I would say after that second book is when I really started to probably increase the amount of confidence I have in this idea, because it, what people report seeing and interacting with and being a part of is so consistent and across that consistency of reports, you see these patterns that emerge that really seem to indicate that what we're dealing with is a human present and the more evolved and more technologically advanced human presence, whether, like you said, we go off, we destroy this planet, we go off and occupy uh, other planets and other solar systems. If we're coming back from those at some point in the future, coming back through time and from those planets, then by definition, we are extraterrestrial too. We have common origins on this planet, but technically speaking, we are extraterrestrial as far as yeah. our more recent origins. So again, I, I don't feel like we can really separate these things. I think the crypto-terrestrial, the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis are part of the same thing. If we interject that aspect of time, all, we can understand how there might be people living among among us. Uh, if we focus on that, that hybridization thing that seems to be happening, it'd be easy to make a person who retains those cognitive capacities of future humans, but through hybridizing them with our, our ancestors, ours and theirs from a more distant period in the past, you can create humans that look just like us, but retain those abilities to communicate telepathically and to have clairvoyance and future knowledge which I think helps explain the the jinn aspect of it, the crypto terrestrial, the ultra terrestrial. So that's that's why more recently I'm wondering if this is all part of the same thing. That element that we were missing may just be time. It may just be the the interwoven aspects of of time um where we're we're seeing and describing things in more myopic terms, but if if we interject that aspect of of temporal change and the ability to transcend different points of time and interact across different points in the human past, present, and future, then uh, I do think it fills in some of those gaps. So as I guess as my uh, understanding of this or ability to conceptualize it more broadly has increased, I've, I've come to feel like this explanation uh, is more valid over time. Yeah. Because cool. of time. Would you say... <laughs> Yeah. Would you would you say like in your mind, do you think it's possible that and again, this is not the same thing. But so if we forget the the future humans for a minute, would you say it's possible that some part of this could be, say, humans from our past, like ancient humans that did what we kind of have been talking about, like kind of off an offshoot or, you know, a breakaway civilization or or even a larger part of a civilization was forced underground or something along these lines. Um, and then they've actually then been continued to evolve thousands of years ahead of where we are. We are the ones that got wiped out and that have kind of had to start again. Have you ever kind of considered that idea? And do you think that's plausible, even if less likely? Um, I don't know, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I consider it a lot and it gets mentioned a lot. 
which really kind of blows my mind because no, I don't think it's plausible at all. I think for a couple of reasons. One, there's absolutely no evidence in our archaeological record that such a large civilization has existed and does mm -hmm. exist now, which we would see. We would absolutely see evidence of that because look at how how much. So a, a good example is, um, you know, there's a study done on some um, Australian Aborigines who are hunter-gatherer groups, and they try to mm -hmm. identify through asking them, they knew where they were. They tried to identify where they were in, uh, in, in moving throughout the year in this one region. And it was very hard to identify any indication of their habitation sites because they're so fleeting. They're there, then they move on. It's kind of your quintessential leave no trace way of living. But once we get to the point where we have agriculture, which is necessary to feed a large enough population, that you can have individuals that specialize in things like building spaceships and time machines. And, you know, prior to that, very simple things like tools and uh, blacksmiths and, and people who are there to defend your stuff against other people who are trying to steal your stuff with permanent armies and leaders. Then at that point, which in our own history uh, and arguably theirs as well, is about 12,000 years ago, where we start to see the development of these large public works projects, uh, ziggurats, pyramids, things that take a population who's not just involved in agricultural production, but who reap the benefits of that agricultural production. And one thing that happens in association with that is with agriculture, you're not just taking what's already there, like we did throughout the long history of humans as hunter-gatherers, but you're modifying the environment to produce what you want for yourself. And that in itself leaves uh, a very long lasting uh, scar is the word that comes to mind, but just an indication of some manipulation of the environment. So because we don't have any indication of that in the archeological record, it also uh, indicates that that didn't happen. The other problem, and this is a bigger problem, which is why it blows my mind that this is even talked about seriously, is that the way culture has always worked is that you have simple giving rise to complex. What we say mm -hmm. in, in studying the evolution of culture is that it's, it's cumulative. It always builds on top of what came before. It's compounding culture in the sense that you can only draw from what already exists. And you build upon that very incrementally, very slowly throughout our past. One of the reasons why it's an accelerating curve is there's more of us with more ideas that are contributing to that base of knowledge that the next generation continues to expand and become more complex. So you can't have complex coming before simple. It's just not the way culture works. However, and again, I think this is one of the reasons why once we interject time into the equation, now you can. In the presence of a time machine, you can have complex coming before simple. You take your complex society from the future go to the past, and maybe you'd want to, especially if the nukes go off and this place becomes a shithole to live in for some time. Why not go back to when the environment was pristine, set up wherever you want to, where people aren't going to find you, maybe an island, maybe you call it Atlantis, I don't know. But it's not a breakaway civilization from that time. They weren't complex then. They were simple then. And they didn't have the technology or knowledge to build spaceships. They get driven underground. They're just going to develop spaceships underground where you can't even test those it, it just doesn't make sense I, it blows my mind that we're even considering this but i see it all the time i just want to have this conversation with every single person because 
The only way you could have that, as far as I can tell, is if it's an extraterrestrial civilization that came here a long time ago, or it's an advanced human civil civilization with complex technology, complex social situations and, and politics and economics that are far more evolved than us, who went back to a period in the past and set up shop. Maybe lived amongst us ever since that time. Maybe they didn't just go back to the future once people, their ancestors, started to get complex enough that we had ships and we could sail around and we started to occupy all parts of the world and would see them and identify them. They destroyed that civilization. Maybe many go back to the future. Maybe many go back deeper into the past. Maybe some live amongst us. But if this is something that is real, and you have to wonder if it is because enough people seemingly think it is or or consider you know it to be the case with past catastrophes and resets and, and human civilization. The only way it makes sense, as far as I can tell, is if they are actually coming from a place where simple led to complex and complex jumps back over into the time of simple and exists there. But as far as a breakaway civilization, there's no archaeological evidence, and it just doesn't make sense logically from the standpoint of how culture changes over time. Assuming they are then future humans, um, how future are we talking? If you, you must have thought about this in some detail, I suppose, and obviously it's something that we're probably never going to have an exact year on unless they tell us um yeah but what is your kind of vibe what is your thoughts on on yeah how distant we're talking well and that's another thing that i feel i overlooked in in writing my first book is i was really just focused on the grays you know what what started this mm -hmm. deep dive for me with that uh quintessential gray alien figure on on whitley's book it um and I, and I kind of see that as a, a failing, you know, and, and that's why as scientists, we, we learn and grow and, and change our perceptions because it, what I realized in writing the second book, the extra tempestral model is that so many are described as human, just like us. Um, some even communicate vocally, verbalize speech in the same way we do eat food, mm -hmm. have kitchens in these ships, have bathrooms in these ships. So, that indicated to me that this isn't a phenomenon that starts sometime in our very distant future. This is something that's probably already in development, and we may begin being the ones seen in these ships in the next 50 to 100 years. Based on the physical character characteristics described and the technology and the, the technology of everyday life, like like bathrooms and kitchens and cooking utensils and things like that, which are described in a number of cases, it indicates to me that this phenomenon starts much sooner than I previously thought. So to answer that question, you then have to ask another question. Which ones are we talking about? Are we talking about the human ones that look like us, that wear the one-piece jumpsuits which seemingly will wear for tens of thousands of years because it's described in almost every case or are we talking about these big-headed big-eyed small-faced telepathic highly conscious entities that may be so far from our future that they even look like bugs to many people as sort of mantid type uh beings which still are bipedal and have the same morphological characteristics of their cranial and postcranial morphology which indicates they are human 
But how long does it take for us to evolve to that point? Then we're talking about potentially hundreds of thousands of years based on past, albeit accelerating, but based on past trends. So I think it depends on the, what I refer to as temporal ancestry, what time they're coming back from. There's also the question of whether or not we have the same geographic variation, geographic, what we used to call races, if mm -hmm. that continues into the future. So the East Asian beings that are described so commonly, and again, in, in Whitley's book, he talks about them being East Asian and lists a number of other uh, cases that also describe that those sort of quintessential characteristics indicative of that geographic group um, is that because they are actually from East Asia, but from a point where they have um, developed technologically, but also evolved slightly in their physical form. So, you know, there's a lot of other factors involved, um, which makes it very difficult to answer that question. But across the board, because of our shared physiology, especially bipedalism, which is the trait that defines the hominin lineage. I, I neglected to mention that earlier, but that's actually what defines us as a clade, as a phylogenetic group over that six to eight million year period. If they're still upright walking and have all of these synapomorphies and homologies that we have, then we have to recognize that they probably are, are a part of our hominin lineage. They are probably human, uh, but from likely very different points throughout the future. So it, it really comes down to which ones we're talking about and whether or not it's just temporal ancestry or geographic ancestry. There's also sex variation, age variation, and we can't know what the sexes will look like in the future. We can't know how old a 16-year-old is or how a 16-year-old looks 50,000 years in the future simply because our ontological trajectory changes so much throughout that time. So um, I'm not avoiding the question. I'm just listing all of the reasons why it's very difficult to say. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I know I can tell you not avoiding it. It's, it's, yeah, it's obviously not a question with a straightforward answer. Um, and you'd expect maybe to, that if this yeah. was all real and happening, you'd expect that maybe we'd be encountering humans at different points in our evolutionary future you know so like yeah some that are yeah. very far in advance like yeah these tiny grays or whatever and then some that are maybe halfway between what we look what we see when we look in the mirror and these grays and things like that yeah and I, th I think that is happening but then also if there's hybridization happening it confuses all of that across Definitely. the board if we're taking yeah, yeah. gametes from past people and hybridizing them with future people that adds a whole nother set of variation that isn't something we've had to consider before because we're not doing it and haven't been able to do it. But if they are, that's another thing we have to add to the geographic, temporal, sex, age, all of these other mm. points of variation. Also, it just happens to totally like throw, you know, like mess with our minds. Like the idea of that, like the uh, you know, our future ancestors uh, hybridize, you know, hybridizing with with us, and and you know, it's just a very confusing thing. But yeah. Um, that's wild. Answer me this. Why do you think, because I'm assuming you're uh, you're with me and that UAP seem to have some interest in, in our nuclear capabilities or facilities or what have you. What is your take on that in regards to, to future humans? Um, like if they were future humans, right? If they're us, you'd think that they would probably be on our side. They would want the best for us in terms of our future and the best for our planet. And they would probably want to, if possible, help us avoid a nuclear catastrophe 
Um, but what are your thoughts on it? Would you, because would you think maybe if I'm going to kind of coming from a cynic point of view now, like if I would say, oh, if they're really future humans, why don't they do something a little bit more direct than just kind of occasionally shutting down some missiles temporarily and, and buzzing around some some strike group with some some nuclear, you know, capability? But yeah, what is your take on on that whole thing? Um, yeah, it's an important question and um, one that's fortunately gotten a lot of consideration um mm. again mostly in the context of extraterrestrials because that's sort of our default but if we look at it in the context of something uh paul heinick one of uh jaylen heinick's sons often mentions is how would they find us and why would they care uh yeah. how would they find us is easy if they are us and we both occupy the same planet just at different times why would they care is a very important question when it comes down to this nuclear issue an extraterrestrial civilization with their own planet seemingly wouldn't have any vested stake they're they're not stakeholders in the sanctity of this planet and what we do to it you know it may be fun to watch oh they're about to nuke each other let's let's get some popcorn and see what that looks like um if they are us and they're stakeholders in the the health and well-being of this planet in the future that's a very important reason to care um, I, something you said there, I think is important to consider too, is intervening to help us, uh, because they care about us. I'm not, I'm not sure that's the case as far as humanity as a whole. Um, you know, why did the Rwandan genocide happen? Why did the Darfur genocide happen in Sudan? Um, yeah. there's all of these cases where people are point. just massacred on a massive level um why did they invent religion if they did i'll throw that out as a controversial uh, talking point that maybe is worth consideration maybe it's because as soon as there was monotheism there was killing in that one god's name maybe it's important to reduce the population through interjecting things that do limit it because as we're all aware the more people there are the more we do affect the environment and ecology of this planet so I don't I don't know if it's really about us so much as it is the earth. And I, uh, I I discussed this this topic in my last book a few different times because I think it is important to consider because there clearly is a focus on nuclear installations um here in Montana where I live the Malmstrom Air Force Base they legit shut down these warheads for a period of time. Is that because yeah. they saw something that we didn't that they were trying to avoid was it to see if they could could have control over them if they needed to if that's the case why what are they trying to keep us from doing something um i also thought it was important to discuss that in the context of the block universe and the many worlds interpretation of, of quantum mechanics where you can have different timelines because that question of stopping something becomes very important these two different models of time um and like i said earlier you know does it matter as long as some of us survive you could have you know the whole of human population one of these resets that uh seemingly exist but whether they're just stories or whether it's more localized like this you know proverbial biblical flood or destruction of atlantis experience obviously the entire world can't flood there's just not enough water for that you can't just create mass out of nothing so 
we're probably talking about localized instances of of these you know resets if you will um why is that natural is it part of some manipulation is it just a point that we you know we need a reset we need to start over and think about things differently i don't know um i think it's an important context of the ufo phenomenon because if if they do care why do they care what's the end game how does it affect us how does it affect them we can only speculate on that um until they tell us but attention to them. yeah i think the, the best bit of that the, the bit that was staring me in the face before and i don't know why i didn't think of it is that like you say um why why humans don't seem to care about each other even right now so why would humans tens of thousands of years in the future come back and and care about yeah. you know humans on a grand yeah, scale and we now? probably seem right and we probably seem very primitive probably disgusting in some ways the fact that we even still have war or the way we treat People each other other animals me, so yeah definitely yeah. yeah exactly if we're disgusted by it in its own time i imagine how people with a more evolved consciousness, uh, potentially even a hive mind, pan consciousness, how they would perceive us in the past. We we do it, you know, not just with people now, but extreme versions in our recent history with slavery and Jim Crow laws and all of the things we did to people throughout the world, genocides that happened on a mass scale across the world as soon as white people got on boats and started traveling around and, and taking over vast swaths of land and resources and people. So yeah, if we're evolving toward a greater sense of empathy and compassion for other humans and other creatures, um, people now probably seem very backwards. And um, I don't know, it, I, it, it's funny to think that they would just want to preserve us, all of us. But, you know, may, maybe we'd want to preserve ourselves. Maybe we don't want to live in a nuclear apocalypse. I, I certainly don't. No, maybe we reach a point where yeah, there's enough enough humans actually yeah don't think like that anymore and don't just care about trampling on other people to to get where they want personally. Um, what about it something seems like um, so far off in the distance? Seems so unattainable, but I hope you're right. Yeah, yeah, I hope is hoping um, something a little bit more speculative, just to kind of get your thoughts in in very brief on this. Is something I've heard quite a few people talk about. It's the CE five. Have you come across this before? Yeah, that's the the it's a close encounters number that was added after Hynix, right? The, yeah, the it's very basically close like contact, a the, the communication. A manufactured one, I think, is the idea. It's like yeah, you kind it was of, intent. You yeah, either via kind of some kind of consciousness or meditation or or what have you. Mm -hmm. There's different ways allegedly of of making this happen, but but yeah, yeah. people claim that they're able to get a light in the sky or a craft or what have you to react to them to to communicate with them in some fashion even if just by flashing and i think sometimes it seems to happen with people maybe sporadically like they're not planning it they just kind of have an experience a lot of the time it is planned what are your thoughts on that do you think that's a legit phenomenon do you think that's maybe misinterpretation and and if you think it's potentially real how do you think that fits in with with this yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think if the phenomenon's real and some people are interacting with it, and I think it's safe to say both of those are the case. So if we can use that as a starting point, um, 
seemingly some people are more connected to it than others. Um, especially once contact is established, yeah. whether that's the intent yeah. of the individual or the intent of the visitors, once contact is established, seemingly more contact ensues. And even people who are tremendously freaked out by what happened at first eventually come to accept it and oftentimes even crave further interaction. So I guess the question then comes down to, can we initiate it? Um, I, I don't see why not, especially if we are evolving toward a more evolved consciousness and mental capacity. If that can bridge space and time, it doesn't just have to be about the physical craft. It can, it can be both. Um, there can be that connection that's made, uh, a desire for validation of the reality of this, or possibly even, you know, full on communication in some form. Um, you know, it's one of those things like, like I, I've never done it. I've never even tried, but if enough people report the same thing, I think we have to take it seriously. I don't mm -hmm. think it's just delusional. Um, if, if there are still questions about whether the phenomenon is real, it's easier to argue that. Um, but I, I don't think, I think we're at a point now where we can be open to things like that. But, but even if you, I, the question that comes to my mind, so I've had intense precognition my whole life. I just had one this morning, which was one of the longest ones I've ever had, wow. where I'm involved in a very benign situation. My son just wanted to show me something on his phone, but I had a dream of that exact thing he showed me um, long before he was even born. Uh, but I think everybody has that. Just certain people are maybe more aware. They pay attention to it more. I kind of wonder if this if it's the same thing with this. A lot of people just don't try, not because they can't, but because it, it seems ridiculous or they don't even know UFOs are real or, or whatever it is. But if some people can do it, I can't help but wonder if everybody could do it. Certain people maybe are just better at it or pay attention to it more, or there's some reason that they're more in tune to what's going on with this phenomenon and the intelligent beings who pilot these crafts. So um, yeah, I definitely don't discount it. I don't need to have an experience of my own to understand it. The same thing with UFOs. Like I didn't need to see one to know that this is happening. You can take what other people say, these eyewitness accounts, and if there's enough of them and they're all saying the same thing, it becomes real. And you don't need to see it for yourself to believe it. It's not a belief system. It's about recognizing patterns in the accounts of others. And that's that's one of the main things we do in anthropology. So maybe it's easier for me to see that. Um, but with the CE5 thing, it, it could very well be the same thing. Clearly, people are in contact with them. Then it's just a question of intent. Can we initiate that through our own uh, volition? And I, I don't see why not. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that the U.S. government um, are in possession of a craft or materials from a craft that was created by humans from the future? Um, that's another area where my thoughts have evolved a good bit. Mm -hmm. I used to be pretty wishy-washy on that. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's because I was already saying things that could be deemed controversial when my first book came out that now in retrospect don't really seem controversial at all. Um, but I, I, I also didn't know, I didn't look into the phenomenon enough to, I still don't know. A uh, few people do, 
but I hadn't looked into the phenomenon enough to say with any certainty whether that could or could not be the case. At this point, I don't. I, I'm almost certain that that they and potentially other um, nations do as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, and in terms of then the, their awareness, what do you think that they are aware of or they believe or they know? Like, again, I'm assuming that there's different, you know, or different groups within government and different people within government that have different views on it. But do you think, like, tell me, have you kind of, have you had, you've had confirmation maybe from insiders? I think somebody told me that somebody that I'm going to read a question from in a minute they mentioned that they asked you a question on another podcast and that maybe you've had confirmation of your hypothesis from from insiders so just again just maybe kind of expand on that and give me your your take on yeah what maybe what they think within government are there people who think that this is future human um what what is what what are you referring to there though it's hard to answer that question without knowing the origins of it what as do you mean? The, which... the, like who who I said what to, and in what context? Oh, I, don't I actually don't that. know. The the person the person I spoke to just told me that he asked you on another podcast, um, or via another podcast. You know, like he, he kind of put in a question, um, to say, have you had any confirmation of your hypothesis from from insiders? And I, I'm told that you replied like, yes, I have had some, and and I was wondering whether yeah, you could kind of just expand on that a bit and give me more more information about that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because within this community, especially with the number of people I've talked to, it's hard to really validate anyone's credentials, especially when they're mm -hmm. talking about having come from the intelligence community where their credentials are oftentimes kept secret or not made publicly known. So so take that with a grain of salt, obviously. Um, but yeah. I, I have met um, certain individuals who claim to have worked for some that I've met in person and talked to directly um, who worked for the, the, the acronym agencies, CIA, primarily FBI, others who, yeah, have, have said good on you because <laughs> yeah, we've, we've, known this we've talked about this it's not something that's been publicly talked about because ufos in general haven't it's um i get the sense that we're supposed to think and have thought for a long time that they come from other planets they even tell us that sometimes they also tell us that they come from the future but you have you know betty hill star map and, and other cases like that where they seemingly say oh we're from this planet or that planet and i think one of the hangups for that is something we should be talking about when they do say that is the likelihood of having a human again upright walking bipedal human with the same physiological form evolve on another planet another solar system with different coding system different uh you know maybe it's not even carbon based but some other silicon or something else different distance from their sun different mass of the planet different gravity different atmosphere all of these things would be expected to make a very divergent looking creature not a human but then if they're saying they come from all of these different planets the likelihood of having that happen again not just on one planet but on multiple different planets that they claim they come from is is almost zero it's it's impossible to even consider that that would happen um but 
they'd still tell us that. And and the the powers that be, especially here in the US, have mm -hmm. been saying it just doesn't exist since the 1940s, especially in the 50s with Saucer, Grudge, Sign, uh, Blue Book. The stated mission was to just say, this doesn't exist. It's not real. We now know that yeah. was a lie. Um, we know that that's not true. They're even starting to say it's not true. All those people are dead. They don't have to be held accountable. But we're still pissed about it. And we're still skeptical, as we should be, because we were lied to for 70 plus years. I think the same issue exists with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. We were supposed to think that as an alternative to weather balloons and seagulls and things. Um, I don't know why. I would love to know why. Uh, perhaps because we weren't ready to know about time, time travel. It's not something we think about. We have a very skewed perception of what it is and how it works, mostly because of movies that have ruined our brains on the actual mechanisms of backward time travel and its, its uh, associated effects. Um, but yeah, undoubtedly, if these craft have crashed and they were time machines with future humans on board, somebody knows that. Arguably, a number of people know that. Uh, most from the early stages of these crashes in the 40s and 50s have probably already taken that to their graves. So um, it doesn't mean the information's gone. It doesn't mean those craft are gone or the beans are gone. They're still somewhere and people still know who they are and what they are, but they're not talking about it openly and for a very good reason, probably. Yeah. So fascinating. Isn't it? This is, I, I could talk about this for ages. Um, what are your thoughts on disclosure, you know, and, and transparency, like in terms of disclosure, is it going to, are we going to get more information coming out? I suppose we're on the right track. At what point, like, are we going to find out everything or enough? Are we ever going to find out everything to kind of, or enough to, to be able to confirm a hypothesis? Um, just, yeah, again, what's your take on, on that whole area? Yeah, I mean, as far as uh, places where, where my thoughts have evolved, that's probably one of the biggest and fastest changing ones, simply because of everything that's been happening recently. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to, when, when I first started this, we would talk about that in conversations and and I, I would always say you know it'd be so great if we could know in our lifetime probably never going to happen now it's almost the exact opposite i i think it is happening and i think we will know not just within our lifetime but maybe in the next five to ten years even um i i think importantly though it's not i don't think it's that you know, these governments to circle back to what we were just talking about, that they necessarily chose to keep this secret. Uh, I also don't think that right now they're choosing to tell us about it, to have disclosure. I think it's the individuals involved, whether they be extraterrestrial or time travelers or interdimensional beings that aren't human, that just happen to look like us. Uh, I think it's up to them. And I think what we're seeing right now is that process being put into place cautiously, carefully, sort of putting things out there, testing the waters, this whole fiasco with the spy balloons getting shot down. None of that makes any sense unless it's in the context of just getting little bits out there. You know, they probably have a, a team of psychologists that are seeing what different media outlets and the reaction from their base see because 
nobody just gets news from the same place anymore. It's all highly polarized and politicized. So maybe it's testing the waters in the context of what we as humans, primitive warmongering humans of their past are able to conceptualize and process because you can't, I don't think you can just come out. I'm speaking from their point of view, kind of. Um, I don't think you can just come out and say, yep, it's us. It's been us the whole time. We've been doing this. Sorry about all the animal probes and, you know, the weird touchy feely stuff on your no, no square. I think you have to sort of lead into that and prime the pump. And I think that's what we're seeing. And, and, you know, even three years ago, we'd be having a conversation like this and the old school, you follow just be like, ah, I've seen it all before. You know, they give us these little, these little morsels and they tear it all away and it's silence for 20 years. This seems different. Historically, this yeah. feels different. And I, yeah. I think maybe that indicates that it's, it's something we could know very soon. Um, it'll challenge the worldview of a lot of people, especially religious people, I think. But it's something that is potentially, we've reached the point where it's time for us to know. A lot of us are asking a lot of questions. It's great. You know, these conversations, these shows that exist, because it's what helps spur that. Um, maybe not just that a government needs to hear that people are asking questions or demanding answers, but the visitors themselves need to see that enough of us have turned off the news or the Kardashians for long enough to actually consider this as a real thing. And um, maybe we've reached the point where enough of us are talking about it and thinking about it seriously that we we can know. Um, and it, it'll probably have some ripple effects and economic, political, religious institutions and spheres of influence. But I think for the most part, we're ready as a species. Yeah. Do you think it would be harder for us as a species to handle the future human thing? Or if it was extraterrestrial, interplanetary, what do you think would be kind of a less less of a less of my like a mind boggle factor for us to to take in i mean on the i I don't think it necessarily matters except for i'm just for fun (laughs) right well no i i mean i'm not saying the question doesn't matter i don't think it matters what their origins are for us to accept it i think no matter what there's going to be ontological shock on a species-wide level I do think where it matters is the people who have had experiences because um, there's been a number of occasions where I've spoken with people who um, had things done to them. You know, the the anal probe thing, the, the sperm extraction, egg extraction, all these things. And after, I've had them approach me and say, after I read your book, it actually made me more accepting of my own experiences because I didn't see this violation by this non-human extraterrestrial creature that came here and did this thing to me i saw it more as a doctor visit where they're doing something Mm. and they needed information and they're humans just like when i go to the doctor at the hospital and that made it okay it made it a little more okay to them and their acceptance of what happened to them so i think sort of extrapolating from that it would be easier for us because we know us we know human we are human. We see that. We interact with that. So I do think it would be easier because we can instantly relate to it. Whereas with extraterrestrials, it's going to be 
much harder. We we construct that yeah. other in their otherness. It's the most other you can possibly have beings that evolved on a different planet. Whereas with us, we can instantly empathize with the human condition. So I think if we look at it that way, it, it would be much easier if if they came out as future humans as opposed to extraterrestrials come out like yeah. like it's Maybe. You know, <laughs> announcing to their parents, "Hey, I'm gay." You know, <laughs> just wanted you to know. Hey, I'm you from the I'm your, few, I, I'm, I'm your great, great, great times by 25,000 <laughs> granddaughter. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I get that. I guess in a way it's like um, better the devil you know, you know, like that kind of old, uh, saying. It's like we, we might not be great, but at least we know kind of in a way what we're capable of. Um, this question is from one of our patrons of this podcast, kind of helps us keep going. Um, he's called Jimmy the Earthling, um, and he asks, Dr. Masters, do you know if anybody has tried computer modeling to estimate future humans based on past and present biological models? Thank you for your time. Um, I know that no one has because I've wanted to do that for the last four years. And there are only a certain number of people who could do that uh, simply because you have to have the cranial facial data. You have to have geometric morphometric skills and you have to be open enough to this question that you would be willing to spend the amount of time it would take to do that and also account for all of those variables that I mentioned with the rate of change in our craniofacial morphology, and then the variation, the sex, the age, the geographic, and temporal variation. Again, what time are we talking about? Are we talking about the future humans that look like us? Or are we talking about the grays that seemingly come from tens of thousands of years in the future? Um, I know people who could do that, and the first three of those variables are accounted for. It's the fourth one that's the stumbling block. Would you be willing to do this and write about it and publish it when there's still so much stigma surrounding in this question? And I'm happy to say that a couple of the people that I would trust to do this and do it well are starting to take this seriously. Um, very prominent anthropologists are are thinking about this as a, a real possibility. As long as that stigma goes down just a little bit more, it might be something we could actually do. Because doing it isn't the hard part. We have the data. We have the yeah. craniometrics. We have the geometric morphometric skills. Um, it's just a matter of getting past that that stigma, that roadblock that exists. Awesome. And I guess we're on the right track in terms of that. I think we agree there that, like you say, there's there's so much happening now yeah. in terms of, you know, government things, private industry, but also just the general tone of the conversation does seem to be changing. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that's going to be something that will happen very soon, because that would be fascinating to see those. Um, it would. Keep, keep trying to convince them. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, I'm not like beating down the door. I realize the limits of our our ability to do yeah, things yeah. that stigma prohibits, but I, I plant seeds, yeah. you know, we just even having the conversation, I think is important. Um, but, but again, I, you know, it's not going to answer any questions. It would at least provide some sort of indication of where we might expect to be based on past trends. The other issue is, is that culture does influence us to such a large extent that, you know, how do we account for all of those cultural changes in the future? We can plot our biological change that was influenced by culture, but cultural changes that yeah. we could identify. 
ones in the future, we can't. So really, it's a problem with any extrapolation. We're just talking about extrapolating the past craniofacial hominin data into the future, which we can do. And it might give us a rough estimate of, say, what we might expect to look like in uh, 5,000 years, 20,000 years, 50,000 years, and so on. But it's it's not going to answer any any questions per se, but it, it would be. Yeah, I've been thinking about that since day one, since before I started writing this book, how great that would be. Yeah, cool. Well, hopefully, hopefully one day soon. Um, this question is from another patron called Joe. Um, it's a bit of a long one, but I'm going to read it kind of word for word. I'll make so, notes. Uh, here we go. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I could reread any parts as well if you need me to. Um, are you aware of the testimony of Dan Burrish, also known as Dan Crane? Burrish is a scientist, an expert in microbiology and a whistleblower whose main claim is to have worked in Black Project at Area 51 and to have some insider knowledge of the purported Majestic 12 UFO cover-up organization. He went public in the early 2000s and his claims were recorded in a small number of interviews and books by UFO researchers. Burrish claimed to have met at least one future human, a J-Rod, whose appearance was similar to the Virginia beings. That is, short, with large black or red eyes, brown skin that appears scaly or reticulated, and with claw-like hands and feet. These beings had some kind of psychic abilities. Amongst his claims are that the Roswell, sorry, Roswell craft was a time machine from tens of thousands of years in the future. Have you discovered or been told any information that might confirm or correlate with these claims? Um, yeah, so... Dan. As you might tell from that, Joe is a, he's a fan of your work. He's really interested in the stuff you do. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm a fan of Joe too. Cause I do, I do love that question. Um, yeah, yeah. Dan Burrish, I did go down a, a quick rabbit hole about, I'm guessing a year ago, maybe cause mm -hmm. somebody brought that to my attention. I try to follow up on things that people say that I'm not aware of cause that's what we should all be doing. Um, and yeah, I, I remember, hearing the description uh i think i even watched uh, a video about what j-rod apparently said um mm -hmm. and it it was oddly similar to what a lot of other people have said and are saying um especially with regard to this sort of impending cataclysm thing what what frank milburn and ross colthart and others have been talking about for couple years now um yeah i mean like 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 we were talking about a little bit ago somebody somebody knows some people know if this organization this majestic 12 which is a pretty narcissistic name for your your group one would have to argue but if they were this secret group that was allowed to do this and it makes sense why we would have that you know if we need this to be yeah. separate from government because government can't be trusted leaks are going to happen but if you keep everything tightly locked, it's one of the only ways you can do it. I think with uh, large civilizations like what we what we exist in. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard because you don't want to say, well, this individual is saying all of the things that I already think, so they must be right, you know. Um, but when you do hear accounts like this, and you do hear about these beings that with variation are still arguably hominin in their their tetrapod bipedal form um i, I think we should definitely consider it um it's not going to be the one thing 
that I focus on for the rest of my life because there's so many other moving parts. But yeah, I, I I did look into that a little bit. And there have been things that I've come across, especially more recently, that would seem to indicate that he's he's certainly not full of shit, uh, but also probably did have access to information that, that most people didn't. Mm. Do you think it's something that we should try and dig further into, into that story? Because it's not really that talked about, not really that, um, I don't want to say well-known because I don't know what people are aware of, but it's not it's not something that's very much discussed in these oh, settings. Well, I, I, I can vouch for that. I hadn't even heard about it until a year ago, despite going deep into the weeds of this time travel theory. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think take everything with a grain of salt because there is clear deception and manipulation as well there's been a number of cases where people have been fed false information for any number of reasons yeah. so so yeah any one person's account always should be skeptically considered but then when we look at all of these other accounts and everything else we can know about this you can certainly consider that as a piece of the puzzle unless there's a reason not to and i and i, I think that should kind of be the way we look at all of this that consider everything be skeptical of it, but also recognize when something isn't accurate, take that piece of the puzzle out because some other piece will mm -hmm. fall into that place uh, in the same way to just completely overuse this puzzle analogy. If it's not the right piece, even sometimes it looks really close, but it just doesn't fit right. And then you do find that piece that just slides right in. So mm -hmm. yeah, we shouldn't hold on to any one piece thinking it's the right one. We should certainly be willing to jettison those in favor of the one that actually fits them. Yeah. And to take your analogy even, even oh, further, nice. sometimes a piece like actually goes in, doesn't it? And you're like, oh yeah, that, that mm -hmm. can work. That, that fits and it looks okay, it's okay. But you know, it's not the right piece. Yeah. Like it's like a bit too tight or a bit, you the know, there's one part of it a little up. bit too loose. Yeah. yeah Something yeah. suspicious yeah, exactly. about it. And I, I think, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's just completely beat this horse to death here with this puzzle analogy. Um, I think it's important to look at that piece and say, why? You know, what is it about yeah. this that doesn't fit? Is it the color? Is it the shape? Is it too tight? Is it too loose? So yeah, if we're always willing to do that with every piece we put in, I, th I think we can only move forward faster in a, in a, a healthier way. Yeah. Yeah. And let's not try and force the piece that doesn't fit because we could let's just be more patient and find the piece that does fit. Yeah. Patience um, is hard in this though. I think a lot of people's patience definitely. is wearing thin. It, 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 it's hilarious to me that some people are just jumping into this and a lot of people right now, because it's finally real. Um, those of us who have been at this for decades or patience is wearing thin, you know, even, even for me, uh, I think a lot of us know that what we've been told for so long wasn't the truth. And a lot of even what we've been told recently is seemingly being manipulated uh, and we're sick of it. You know, we want the answer yeah. now, but at the same time, you know, once the mystery has gone, that'll that'll be a little sad, too. I mean, how many of us have enjoyed that mystery? Like we talked about at the top of the show. That's what got me into it was how much yeah. more interesting and mysterious this was compared to the Titanic. We can eventually know everything about what happened to the Titanic, where it is, how it split apart, what's in there. But this one just yeah. kept going my entire life, you know, and it's, it's yeah. weird to think, what if it's just over? We'd all be really happy because we would have the answers, I think but the mystery has gone. Yeah, I think you're right. But at the same time is let's say, yeah, they say it hits the, you know, it comes out tomorrow. The government has gone on record and confirmed that this is 
future humans or this is extraterrestrial, whatever it might be. Let's say they go out and yeah, it takes away an element of the mystery, but we'll have so many other sub mysteries to discuss in terms of like motivations and intent and yeah. how this all came about and, and other side things like was that connected to this right. or was that something else entirely? That's true. So yeah, I, I agree. But yeah, there'll be there'll be new mysteries from the, the solving of that. Yeah. mystery, And just um, for it to so. happen in our time. Like we're lucky enough yeah, that one of the lifetime, biggest mysteries yeah. of human time, we happen to be alive to find that out now. That that would be pretty amazing. Yeah. It, it would. You're right. It would yeah. suck more to have that mystery your whole life, but then die before people. And then it's like the year after you die that they sit down on Times Square and say, "Hey, we're here." Damn. Yeah. Where yeah. That you? would suck. How can you come here? Earlier? <laughs> <laughs> Dead now. Um, look, I know I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but I got just a couple more questions if we can try and get to these. So one is, I just had to ask you. You kind of mentioned something about it earlier. I couldn't get a read either way. Have you seen a UFO or a UAP? Oh, uh, I've been asked that question for years, uh, and it was always no. But finally, it's yes. I did finally, and not just one. There were five. Five of them really? at the same time. It was, yeah, it was pretty cool. Wow. Um, right here in, in my own backyard, uh, literally, I was standing in my backyard and saw five very bright lights uh, equally spaced over what's known as the East Ridge. It's this very close mountain range. So they were they were pretty close, much bigger and brighter uh, and closer than any celestial object, which in itself is cool. But then the, the clincher was that as I'm watching them, like, oh, this is, and I assumed it was uh, a, a SpaceX launch, the the satellites, mm -hmm. Starlink, um, yeah. at first. And then all of a sudden, one by one, from right to left, they just shot off right at the horizon, uh, perfectly in line with the horizon at tens of thousands of miles per hour. One went, then the next one, then the next one, and all five of them. And as I'm watching that, now I'm, you know, very very interested in, in what i'm seeing and just how anomalous it was and yeah I, I don't think i can say any longer that i haven't seen a ufo because it fits so many descriptions of what what people have seen and, and there's nothing that we know of now that could do that that could sit stationary hover and then just shoot off at tremendous speed like them so i'm in the club i'm finally yeah. in the club now yeah wow that's that's awesome I, i'm i'm not quite there yet i have a kind of a, a very vague memory from from my younger years but it's not concrete enough for me to put myself in the yeah club, so it's I'm, harder I'm when staying. you're younger too i i have yeah. yeah little things in there from when i was young and i just i don't lend it much credence because our imaginations ran wild back then Although, do you know what? I remember what's stronger than the actual memory of the visuals. I remember the feeling of going from, oh, wow, that's interesting to like, I'm a bit creeped out. Mm -hmm. And I was with, you know, like some friends and stuff. And so it wasn't like I was alone in the woods or anything. But that's what I remember. That's the main overriding memory is going from like, like, wow, to oh, um, am I like scared? That that's a bit. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, yeah, exactly. you know, I was by myself. I was in the woods late at night and all I had was excitement. Had I not studied this my entire life i probably would have had a, a really strong fear response but it was like yeah, yeah it finally happened you know i finally yeah i finally saw one and and five at the same yeah. time so yeah i think without that understanding now if you put your current consciousness and your younger child self i think you'd feel the same way but before you really mm -hmm. think about it a lot it, it's it's definitely jarring yeah yeah so when was that that you saw those it was this year last year or 
Yeah, it was uh, in the late spring, early summer. I'd say probably May of last yeah, year. Yeah, just over a year ago. Or when or this is released, it'll be ago. pretty yeah. close to... All oh, right, we're not supposed yeah. to give oh, Sorry, just stamps. under a year ago, yeah. I'll keep it more ambiguous. It was warm outside. I was walking <laughs> up through the forest, had a glass of scotch, I believe it was. So I was consuming alcohol. Nice. Everybody's like, I wasn't wasn't drinking or on drugs i swear i was and i still saw this thing wasn't drunk but (laughs) had a whiskey yeah and uh yeah it was warm enough that it must have been it might have actually been later summer so within the last six to ten months i'd say wow awesome um and was there any other aspect of it was it just what you saw did you get any kind of feeling that you say you kind of excitement was there anything else worth mentioning about that experience before i move on um well it was very clearly anomalous, but the fact that my brain convinced itself it was Starlink uh, mm. might fall in line with some UFO apathy things that are described very often that you just don't ascribe the meaning that deserves to be put to that thing. Because um, I, I even ran upstairs, I shook my wife awake and said, I just saw Starlink, it's the craziest thing in the world, and it wasn't at all starlink i eventually watched videos of what that looks like from all these different perspectives from the spaceship that's launching them from people on the ground as well all of these lights going together very slowly not what i saw yeah this was definitely not that it definitely wasn't any craft that we currently have um and it fits all the descriptions of ufos as they've been described for you know centuries so i i think that's the only sort of anomalous part but i didn't get any any sort of you know download or communication or anything like that it was just a, yeah, a really cool no, thing to see no missing time mm-hmm. yeah no nothing yeah, okay like that. cool well i'm happy you got to see it though because yeah, yeah it's obviously been a big part of your life so yeah awesome I'm, I'm i'm pleased for you um talk to me briefly about what your thoughts are on psi phenomena obviously this is something that does seem interlinked with the ufo phenomenon we have like you know for example with aerial school and and plenty of other cases like the telepathic communication um we have with the nimitz potential kind of precognition of it going to the cap point and things like that um there's probably other examples that i could i could go into but yeah in general the connection is there, but but as well as that, what are your thoughts on side phenomena as a standalone? Because uh, I think at this point, again, from my point of view, it's largely been proven in a lab, really, in modern times. Um, but yeah, take it away. What do you think? Well, I mean, I guess it's it's easy, convenient, but also maybe problematic to group all side together because mm-hmm. there are a number of different things associated with that yeah you mentioned you were having some precognition which yeah is, no, precognition in a second precognition is well. definitely real um if anybody's interested in learning more about that i recommend eric wargo's book uh time loops is what it's called really goes deep deep into that with regard to our historical mm-hmm. understanding of it relationships to quantum mechanics and numerous other things i think that's one we can check off not just because i've had it uh, my entire life and it's very very real but because there's enough evidence to say that is real and it's not you know it's not that mind-blowing it's not like telekinesis or moving things with your mind um i think uh yeah the telepathy is definitely real there's no question about that uh remote viewing clairvoyance i think uh is is an aspect of uh precognition so i don't think we can even separate those because it's not someone seeing something in the future. Uh, it's seeing something from 
their own brain and their own future with the vast majority of it. So, you know, you, you don't precognize the year 5000 AD, you precognize something from your own future that gets sent back most often through dreams where uh, arguably consciousness is timeless and can move from uh, future to past. But yeah, some of the other ones like like telekinesis, uh, being able to move things with your mind. As far as I know, there's there was a my stepdad told me a long time ago that there was like a a huge reward for anyone that could prove that ability. So there was an incentive to do it. To my understanding, you know, I I never looked into this. It's just taking my stepdad's word for it. But he was always interested in this stuff too. Um, but yeah, like the the near death experiences. What happened to people after? A traumatic head injury where they develop all kinds of psi capacities. Again, I think we should be careful in which one we're talking about. Um, people have sudden musical abilities and artistic abilities. I met a number of these people. It's mm. it's phenomenal what happens. It starts yeah. from a tragic thing, but then what comes out of it, a lot of times they'll even say, you know, that I would take that horrible moment again to have the insights and the abilities that I, I garnered from those. Um, so, yeah, I think, unfortunately, Psy is one of those things that there's been an ebb and flow throughout the late 1800s. Um, there's the Society for Psychical Research and a lot of really prominent, respected scientists like Alfred Russell Wallace, for instance, that were really interested in it because they knew it was real. There were inklings of the reality of these things, and they were attempting to understand it uh, through seances and, and summonings and things. And there's arguably tangible evidence that that's real too so yeah, yeah i'm on i'm on board i think it's another one of those things we should be studying more but don't because the stigma has overwhelmed our our ability to do so but may, maybe that'll change too as the stigma around ufos wane uh perhaps that mm. will as well yeah strangely i think it is seeming to to already be in the process not maybe as advanced or as quickly as ufos but i do think it is starting to you know, the, the cracks are starting to appear on the, the facade of yeah, the whole thing. Definitely. And, and even just talking about it, like, like I, you know, I've been talking mm -hmm. about my precognition for a long time openly because it's not something that I feel is even weird. It's a very normal part mm -hmm. of my life. And, and actually, it was great to see just the other night I was watching uh, the Colbert Report. No, it's not called anymore. The late night was Stephen Colbert. And he had... um. Elvis Presley's granddaughter on and they showed a scene uh, where this precognition was involved somehow. And the whole interview, she goes on to talk about her lifelong precognition and the exact way it's happened to me my entire life and the exact way I've been talking about it my entire life. And for her to do that in such a public forum is important because she's Definitely. describing something that's very real. And a lot of other people have inklings of it or who have it very intensely mm -hmm. like I do then you know that that takes away the stigma almost more than anything it's just publicly discussing these things that are seemingly outside or unparalleled to normal which is where the word paranormal came from um if we speak about them I mean if individuals haven't had an experience that allows them to understand it the same way they can at least get the sense that it is real and i think i think yeah, that's important yeah, we, it, and it's something that a couple of years ago, I thought it was absolute nonsense. I really had no concept or clue or awareness of, you know, if you said to me, what do you think about psychic 
stuff i would have been i would i would have immediately had the image of you know a, a fairground with like a, a future teller with a crystal ball and and like yeah some just just ridiculous things yeah. and i would have I, I would have been like nah it's a load of nonsense obviously you know everybody knows it's nonsense um it's with father christmas in the, in that bin mm-hmm. and and but then yeah a few years ago I, I i won't go into it now but things you know i didn't have any experiences i wouldn't say but it was just kind of having my mind opened and coming to the research and actually doing the research and then realizing, Oh, actually, wow, there's a, there's a serious amount of science and data to back this up. Yeah. It's just, we don't acknowledge it. We don't talk about it. It's like, yeah. Can you tell me, I know you've got to get going shortly, but can you tell me um, for a few minutes about your precognition and how that's been for you? Cause that's one of the main topics that this podcast kind of explores is along with UFOs is precognition and, oh, and actually survival after death, that kind of uh, potential survival of consciousness. Those are the three kind of main areas. And I tend to ask my UFO guests what they think of these other two. And I tend to ask my, my guests in the field of sci, like the scientists, what they think of UFOs and vice versa. So but again, I'd love to hear well, a little bit about that. Because yeah, how it's that's been affected you, how the- so dominant throughout my life, mostly in the context of dream precognition, which is where mm-hmm. those exchanges happen between future and past. Uh, but I have had about five uh, conscious precognitive moments. And the, the first one was when I was eight or nine years old and looked up at the living room shelf and saw Whitley Strieber's book. It It wasn't just, mm-hmm. oh, this is an interesting question. Since I've had conscious precognition for other times since, I see that that was the exact same thing. It was on a very long scale and it was very intense. And there was almost like a mesmerization that happened in association with this flash of light. May even have missing time. I don't know. Um, But that was a very powerful one that then led me to go down this path that I was eventually going to be on or that event wouldn't have happened. They're intricately linked through time. But as far as really trying to understand it myself, especially as a young child, the best I could come up with is that my soul or my consciousness is always in this body. And once I get to the end of this body in linear time and it leaves, it's probably going to be right back there at the beginning and enter through uh, you know this this proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. What if that's the birth canal? What if our consciousness ends? potentially through the pineal gland, as Rick Straussman talks about in his uh, his book, The Spirit Molecule, enters that body again to go through this linear progression within a physical form, because we have to be housed within these bodies. But consciousness itself is timeless. I, I say going back to that time, but they don't necessarily exist as separate entities with a timeless consciousness in the same way that when people have near-death experiences, they're removed from this physical form and they talk about seeing in all directions at the same time. They can see all times and all points in space. And that's probably the essence of our our soul or our consciousness or our mind once it is detached from this physical capsule that houses it, that exists in this natural world that we've evolved to and we reproduce in biologically. Um, So that's how I conceptualized it early on in the context of this light at the end of the tunnel, just being my consciousness reentering this body. And I've lived in this body for all of eternity. And that that helped me to to conceptualize, whether it's right or wrong, my own experiences, because you you don't have these things happen and just say, "Hmm." you you ask why or how or what is going on here. And, And I could never escape that. It's 
it was too powerful to just write off as deja vu. There's there's something more to it. Deja vu is when you experience the end result of of that dream that came from your future. But by saying, oh, it's just deja vu, that's like saying, well, God did it. We don't have to ask questions. We just that that shouldn't be a stopping point. It should be like, yeah, that deja vu is a part of something bigger that's happening that involves a, a timeless consciousness as I've come to see it. Yeah, wow. It's so fascinating. And I'm I'm have you had what was the kind of most recent or, or let me ask you instead, how common has this been for you? How frequent have, have these kind of precognitive moments or dreams been for you through your life you said you'd had five big kind of yeah i mean i'm do you have them regularly on a smaller scale yeah and it's always the most benign things you know it's never anything powerful like this morning it was my my kid showing me how uh there's this prison where the prisoners have cats if they're good and they get to have a cat and and yeah i heard about that the most you know benign thing like why did that information get sent back to my like 28 year old self you know i didn't live in this house i didn't know my wife i didn't have kids or any knowledge of kids but that was a very real moment as i dreamed it because it was a very real moment in my future so so you dreamed that that your son was telling you about that not it's not when, see it's never just um the moment in the context of what i see it's all things that are going on at that time i remember this the smells uh the feeling i had as that was taking place, you know, love for this individual uh, that I didn't know existed at the time I had the dream. It's always the most benign things. It's never like lottery numbers or anything cool like that. I mean, the benign things are cool too, but nothing like useful. It's just whatever it is, that moment broke free from this morning and got projected back in a dream state to when I was, I'm late twenties is kind of where I placed that one. Um, but then there'll be years where it doesn't happen at all. Um, but before that, the most recent one was about two weeks prior. But before that, I'm guessing it was at least a year. And what's funny is throughout my life, every time they've dried up and I haven't had one of these precognitive moments, the realization from that actual moment in, in waking life, I assume it means because I'm going to die. I'm always like, well, I must be dying soon because there's nothing left in the future to project back. But really, I've come to understand that, that there's just a weird ebb and flow to it. The most recent conscious one uh, took place, ironically, about three days before I was flying to a conference at Rice University, where I was on a panel with Eric Wargo, who wrote the book about precognition, arguably the book about precognition called Time Loops. And the conscious ones are rare. You know, like I said, five throughout the 45 years of been alive that I can remember. But this was one where uh, my wife took the kids to school. It's a lot of snow on the ground. Um, she missed the bus at the bus stop, had to follow the bus and then go to a, a different spot. And as she was turning around, she got stuck in a ditch that looked like it was flat, but the snow was you know many feet deep. She's never gotten stuck in the snow, not once. But I was staying there going to get my phone and I look at it and think, oh, it's weird. My wife hasn't called to pull her out of the snow yet. Um, I go to put my phone in my pocket. It rings. It's my wife telling me she's stuck in the snow because she had to go to a different bus stop and got stuck in a ditch because it looked like it was flat and she could turn around there. No way of knowing that other than the fact that it was about to happen. And my brain somehow saw through that brief moment in time between when I got the call and that 
question, oh, that's weird. She hasn't called me. And it wasn't at all weird. Like, oh, it's weird that I'm thinking about whether or not my wife has called me. It just, it was a very normal thought. Oh, it's strange. She hasn't called yet. And then calls probably five, 10 seconds later. So those moments, again, sort of recapitulate the reality of that and, and sort of keep you guessing. But again, why, you know, why that, why not? Like, a lot, a lot of people do precognized car crashes and traumatic events. Plane crashes is a pretty common one. But for me, it's mm-hmm. always been, you know, the most the most seemingly unimportant things, but it still happens and I'm still aware of it. And you can't yeah. not be aware of it when it happens that much in different ways over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, that's incredible. Um Thank you for sharing that. And and you mentioned briefly NDEs and, and you mentioned just then when you don't get a precognition for a while, you were starting to think maybe it's because I'm going to die. So on that note, just again, in a, in a quick nutshell, because I, I do want to let you go, I promise. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on what happens when we die? Have you looked into it much or is it just a gut feeling? Um, have you had any experiences surrounding that? Have you ever had an NDE or, or anything else? Um, yeah. Um. No, I. one thing I do come to wonder... Um, and this might have to wait for another conversation in the future, but um, I, I describe my own interpretation of what I think happens to me and my soul is that it always is in this body for eternity. But yeah, in talking with that, other yeah. people, seemingly it's not as restrictive. Uh, a lot of people's minds can move into other bodies at other times. And there's a lot of indication that that is true. Um, Leslie Kane did a great documentary about that, like a five or six part series on that. I don't remember the name of it. Surviving Um, death. Yeah. Surviving death. There's, she was at that conference too, actually. I must recommend the book. It's even far, far better. They always are. They always are. It gets whittled down so much for these docos and series, but um, yeah. And, and, you know, list a number of examples of of these things happening. In the case of Om Seti, um, who was a, a princess in Egypt uh, three thousand years ago, who had to take her own life because she slept with the pharaoh and didn't want people to find out. And she enters the body of this girl in in England who fell down the stairs and was pronounced dead. And then the doctor goes to get the death certificate, comes back, and she's jumping around on the bed playing with toys and. Uh, he's like, well, she was just dead. What happened there? And uh, I, for anyone who's not familiar with that story, that's just a little teaser. I can't describe the entire thing, but go get the book. Uh, Om Studies Egypt. Uh, it's a really phenomenal story. And a, another you know, good example of how our consciousness can seemingly not just move through time and space as people describe in near-death experiences who then go back into their own body but once you do cross that threshold, not just a near-death experience, but a full-on death experience, F-O-D-E, then you can potentially enter other vessels and other times. So so for me, I, I understand it as my constant eternal reality in this uh, this fleshy meat bag capsule that I, I carry around. But for other people, they can seemingly do things at other times and other bodies. Um, so... Yeah, to answer your question, it's not something I've experienced with. I I can't say firsthand. You know, I I remember things from a different body at a different time, but I've met enough people and read and seen enough things that I I do think that's another possibility. Yeah, no, again, thank you for sharing your thoughts on it. And and it's it's always good to hear 
a different take. And if anybody that's watching or listening is interested in learning more about that phenomena, phenomenon or about the, the psychic stuff that we were talking about, I've got plenty of episodes on both those, plenty of interviews with various scientists. I've spoken to Leslie Kane oh, nice. that you just mentioned um, I, uh, all about the book. And, and I love that because that, the book kind of changed everything for yeah. me. Um, anyway, look, I've taken up more than enough of your time, Mike. Uh, last thing I'll ask you before I let you go is just if you've got any kind of last words, a few, uh, a few parting things you want to say to anybody that's watched and listened. It can be absolutely anything um yeah um yeah i don't know just that we we keep talking about things and asking questions and trying to find answers the best we can even though nobody has all the answers we get there through our collective um inquiry just asking and, and talking about um and yeah i mean i think the more we do it'll be the same experience i've had where uh, you just keep evolving the way you think you think about things based on further evidence that, that comes about. And as long as you're open to that, but also skeptical and critical of what you're you're hearing and seeing and reading, then uh, um, I think really we're on, on a path to discovery that, that, as we talked about, may be even reality, not just a speculative view of the future but one that we we have answers potentially even in our lifetime um i'm hopeful of that yeah yeah hopeful hope, hope i feel so. like that was kind awesome. of a, a psa at the end there a little public service announcement let's all <laughs> let's all keep no, talking I, I echo it it's good <laughs> keep talking keep sharing like the more we talk the more we share the more i ask people to share their, these experiences and the more people the more times i'm getting now People share experiences that I'm like, oh, wow, you know, I did not see that coming. I didn't think you were going to tell me like this, for example. I didn't expect you. I didn't realize you were going to tell me that you've been having precognitive experiences. Um, and it's just great. You know, we just, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Keep talking. Let's keep sharing it. And the more people that do talk about these things, um, it's going to liberate others to feel like they can do the same. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah i appreciate you i appreciate you talking about this with me i appreciate you giving me this time i've taken up more than i said i would so i'm sorry <laughs> about that um but yeah really really enjoyed it this was a lot of fun fascinating um and yeah i wish you all the very best michael yeah Thank you likewise again. ben it's great talking to you appreciate you having me on thank you to michael masters for talking with me and thank you for listening please see the description for relevant links including to michael's books and website if you enjoyed this interview please consider liking it and subscribing to our channel if you want to help us continue making content, please contemplate contributing via Patreon. Thank you.